All right. Good morning, Journey. Uh, my name is Daniel, and I'm one of uh, the pastors here at Journey, and I get the honor of wrapping up our relationship series with you uh, this week. Man, I hope that's been a blessing to you guys. Has that been a blessing to anybody in the room? It's been a fun series and a very beneficial series for us to walk through with you guys. And God's taught us a lot as we've walked through it also. And today we are wrapping up the series by actually talking about neighboring. So we're going to look at uh, who is our neighbor and then how exactly is it that we should be living with our neighbors. And we're going to jump right in that. So in 1953, Edmund Hillary uh, climbed to the top of Mount Everest and then uh, also descended, becoming the first man that we're aware of in the history of the world to go to the top of Everest, the toppest point, the highest point in the world, and then come back down. And since then, there's been hundreds of people who have paid upwards of $50,000 to get to the top of the mountain, to the top of the world, as they call it, and then get back down. And many people who try to get to the top of the mountain obviously do not make it back down safely. It is a very dangerous climb. It is probably the most dangerous climb uh, in America, and there's an area of the climb called the death zone. And it's uh, uh, climbers have labeled it that because the oxygen level is so low and it's so cold that if any skin on your body gets exposed at that moment, it will immediately uh, become frostbitten. And so obviously climbers take every precaution they can to get to the top and then back down. There was one guy who had tried it two times by 2006. A man by the name of David Sharp was an experienced mountain climber. He had climbed mountains like Kilimanjaro. He had attempted to climb Everest on two separate occasions and had to turn back both times because of the safety of his team. And it became clear that they just were not going to be able to make it back up and then come back down in the time that they needed to. And so in his third attempt, David uh, became convinced that if he went solo without a team and also without the weight of oxygen bottles, that he would be able on his own to get up the mountain and back down. He assured his mom that there was no danger and reminded her on multiple occasions that he had climbed high mountains before and always made it back home. And so in May of that year, he took off and he began his ascent up Mount Everest. Uh, from what we know, David actually made it to the top of Mount Everest, but on May the 15th, a uh, tragedy struck as he was back down, and we're not exactly sure what went wrong, we don't know, but something went wrong, and he began to succumb to the elements around him, and David actually ended up huddled in a cave known as Green Boots Cave, and it's called Green Boots Cave because there was a Asian hiker who about a decade before had also attempted to climb the mountain and had not made it. And at that height, it becomes impossible to get corpses or bodies back down off of the mountains. And so this guy became, this is something to be great known as, right? He became kind of a mile marker on the way up up the, the mountain and he had on green boots. And so everybody called it Green Boots Cave where he was staying. And so this is where David ended up huddled right next to a guy who had huddled there 10 years before. And he had his knees pulled to his chest and he had his arms wrapped around his knees, and about that point, after he'd been there for a while, and it was becoming obvious that he wasn't going to make it back down the mountain, a group of about 40 climbers approached David. And they had a choice. And the choice was, we can keep moving and make it to the top of Mount Everest, the place that very few people in the world have ever been, a, a major accomplishment in the life of anyone who enjoys climbing, or we can stop and help 
David, even though it might be a feeble attempt, we have a chance to actually help someone whose life is coming to an end. And all 40 of those climbers had a decision to make. And one by one by one by one, all 40 made the decision to keep walking up the mountain and leave David there to die on his own. Now they got to the mountain and they celebrated a temporary moment of joy as they came back and realized that David was still there and he wasn't going to make it. And eventually they walked off of the mountain and conversations began about what happened. How is it that this continues to happen on Mount Everest, that person after person continues losing their life? And some people blamed it on a lack of technology, that if we just had better technology, then we would know when you actually needed to turn around and and when that point was, that it was obvious that you were not going to make it. There were other people who blamed it on the fact that David refused to carry oxygen with him. And if he had just had oxygen, then he would have been able to make it back down the mountain safely. There were other people who said, man, you know what, if we just had emergency teams, like a, a group of highly skilled people who were always on the mountain and ready to go, that anytime someone was in trouble, they could just hit their radio. And then this group of elite climbers would come in and they would rescue them and they would bring them back down off the mountain and we would not have to deal with that anymore. But Sir Edmund Hillary, the first guy to climb Mount Everest, was interviewed and he was asked about it. And he didn't blame it on technology and he didn't blame it on a lack of people willing to go and rescue others. He blamed it on the culture that mountain climbers had created around Mount Everest. And he said this, he said that we've made the peak of chief importance. In other words, the most important thing to anyone who is on the mountain at any given time is simply getting to the top and getting back down. And the lives of the other people climbing at the same moment are not nearly as important as getting to the top and getting back down safely. Now, if you interviewed anyone who was on the mountain that day, they would disagree with you. They'd say, no, that's not true. I really did value the life of David. And I didn't value getting to the top more than I valued his life. But look, their actions actually revealed something different. And in fact, if you're taking notes, you can you can jot this down because this is true. Our actions always prove what is of chief importance in our life. Our actions always prove that, not our words. We, We know the right things to say, right? We're adults, majority of the people in this room. You know what to say when someone asks you, What is most important in your life? If you've been walking with Jesus for a while, then you know the church answer, right? I'm supposed to say that the most important thing in my life is my relationship with Jesus. So when someone asks me, that's what I'm going to repeat back to them. When they go, hey man, tell me about the important things in your life. I'm going to say the most important thing in my life is my relationship with Jesus. And then when they say, hey, what's next? We're going to say, y'all know this, right? We're going to say the most important thing in my life right next to Jesus is my relationship with my spouse if I'm married. And then it's my relationship with my family. And then we're going to throw the job in there probably around number four, although it's probably right here around around number one. We're going to throw it in number four because we know what we're supposed to say. And then my hobbies and other things that I enjoy, they're all going to come after that, but I want to pose a question to you as we began this morning, 
And that is, what if someone, instead of asking you, just watched you? And they said, according to the actions of David, here are the most important things in his life. Would it be the things that you would speak out of your mouth, or do your actions say something different? Do your actions say that truly the thing of chief importance in your life is something else? So with that in mind, let's look at this. Someone asked Jesus this question one time. They wanted to know what was of chief importance in all of the world. They said, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is what you would expect the Son of God to say. And so he's given them the answer probably that they were expecting. This was common in Jewish culture, to love the Lord your God. That's what you're supposed to do as someone who has received the law and follows God. But he does what he did quite often, and he gives a little more. And he says this is the first and greatest commandment. And then he says this, and there's a second that is equally important. Not almost important, but equally that it is as important as loving God. And it's to love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. Did you get that? We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the greatest thing that you can do as someone who has been created by God and saved by Him. The most important thing you can do is to love Him. And then Jesus goes, but there's something else that is just like it. It's just like it. Not it's close to it. Not, hey, it's close second. Not once you get one, make sure you get two. He's saying that these are two things that you should always get. The first one is to love God. And the second one is to love your neighbor. It's to love your neighbor. Now, who is your neighbor? Jesus is going to tell a story in just a minute. I'm just going to tell you this, that your neighbor is anyone that you live in close proximity to. That's who your neighbor is. It's anyone that you live in close proximity to, anyone that you're coming in contact to or with at that moment. And so we want to look at what it means to love them. The early church had this down pat, and we read this about them in the book of Acts. And this is where we will be looking for uh, the remainder of the day. It says this. It says, All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt what they owned was not their own. And they shared everything that they had, and the apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's greatest blessing was upon them all. And there were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them, and they would bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He is from the tribe of Levi, and he came from the island of Cyprus. And he sold a field he owned, and he brought the money, and he gave it to the apostles. And so what we want to see today from this passage is how to be a good neighbor. How is it that you and I actually live out biblical principles to the people that are around us, to the people that we can have an impact on every day? And in that passage, the first thing we see is that we will be humble. That if we're going to be a good neighbor, then we're going to be people that are humble. That it actually doesn't start with our actions, although it's going in there, but it begins with our heart. It begins with who we are, the makeup of our being. In fact, Paul put it this way later on in the book of Philippians. He said, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourself. 
And don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others also. And the passage in the Acts that we just read said that all the believers work together. It makes this weird statement. If you're reading it in a different version, it says, and they had everything in common. They had everything in common. I don't know about you, but I've yet to meet the person that I have everything in common with, right? Anybody in here, have you met that person that's exactly like you, that laughs at all of the things that you laugh at? Maybe you're like me. I laugh at inappropriate times. Like, if you get hurt, I'm laughing at you. And then I'm going to check on you. And if you're hurt, I'm going to feel really bad. But it's a reaction that I cannot control. Like, it's just, it comes out. There are other people who think I'm a horrid individual for laughing at someone that might be hurt, right? There's a difference there. I have a weird sense of humor. There are things that I joke about and I laugh about. And I have a daughter that is so much like me, it's scary. But guess what? She's not exactly like me. We're different. We don't have everything in common. We're not completely unified. There's a difference in us. And look around the room. There's several hundred people in here. There is no way that we have everything in common. No way. And at this point, the church was not... A handful of people, this is thousands of people that have placed their faith in Jesus. And they started following Him. And the Bible says that they have everything in common. How in the world is that possible? It's because they learn that there's one thing that matters more than any other. And that one thing is the gospel, it's the person of Jesus. And the fact that He died for us and that He rose again and that He offers eternal life. And they realized that everything else in life was secondary to that. And look, it allowed them to push everything else to the side. And so it wasn't that they were exactly the same. They were very different. They were very different. When they watched things, they probably rooted for different people to win, right? They were different. They laughed at different things. Their interests were different in life. They came from different backgrounds and different careers. But they said, we're going to take all that. We're going to push it aside because Jesus matters more than any of that. And they practice humility. They practice humility. Humility is not necessarily looking down on yourself. Humility is simply us saying that I'm going to refuse to live with entitlement. In fact, entitlement is the opposite of humility. Humility says that I don't need all of this stuff to live life, and I don't need you to dote on me, and I don't need you to always worry about me or to always check on my opinion, but let's just do what we think's best. And entitlement says you need to always come to me and everything I have I deserve. Right? I deserve this. That I deserve everything that I've done. We make statements like, I work myself up from nothing. Or we say, he's a self-made man or she's a self-made woman. As if we did it all on our own and God had no, no part to play in it at all. But listen, here's what entitlement does. One, it makes us arrogant because we think we deserve everything we have. And I go, God, you know what? Thanks for all the blessings, but I deserve those. I worked hard for them. Right? I deserve that. Anytime somebody does something nice for you, You go, that's great, but I deserve that. And it removes the possibility for anyone to show us love. It it completely does away with it. Now, because I do something to serve you, because I love you, and you go, you should have done that anyway. That's what husbands are supposed to do. Or you go, "Eh? okay, thanks. That's what wives are supposed to do. Or, hey, great, congratulations, you cleaned your room. That's what children are supposed to do, and it removes the ability for you to show love, and it removes the ability for me to receive love. And all of a sudden, we're not living a humble life, but we're living in such a way that we always want 
our desires and our opinions to be first. Look, that's exactly what the early church was guarding against. And we will never be able to live in such a way as a church body or as individuals that impacts the world outside of us if we live that way within the body. And so they're saying, listen, we're going to be humble people. We're humble and our humility will allow us to show love to other people because now we see it acted out later because now I have all of this stuff. And because I don't feel entitled to it, I can sell it or I can give it away so that other people who don't have anything can have something. And they choose to live with humility. Now let me tell you what humility is not before we move on because I don't want you walking out of here having a bad opinion of yourself. Humility is not looking down on yourself. It's not looking in the mirror and going, I'm so glad that God gave me these massive biceps. You guys see those, right? That humility is not continuing to look in the mirror and go, but he also gave me this big nose and these big ears to keep me humble, right? That's not it. Humility is not thinking poorly of yourself. Humility is not thinking of yourself. In other words, every time that I go out and I'm hanging out with friends, we don't have to do what I want to do. Every time they play a song at church, it doesn't have to be the one that I wanted them to sing at the volume I wanted them to sing it at, right? That, that's humility. It doesn't have to be about me. It's about something greater than me. In fact, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He's a great theologian and author, and he said this, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. In other words, it's me saying, I don't always have to get my way, and I'm going to sacrifice sometimes what I want for the sake of the gospel. In fact, that's the second thing the church was doing. They were gospel-focused. They were loving their neighbor by being on, focused on something bigger than they are. You saw in the second verse that we read, it said, and the apostles were sharing the gospel and they were doing it with great power, which meant it was obvious to people that God was active and that He was moving and people were being drawn to the person of Jesus because of the way that they were living their life and the things that they were doing made it possible for them to carry out a focus on the gospel. Hey, I realize I I might be a little bit odd in this, but I love a good commercial. And so I pay for the Hulu plan that allows commercials. I know for some of you guys that just blew your mind, but I can't. I can't pony up the extra $2, and I actually enjoy them because good commercials stick with you a long time, right? There's, there's very few of them, but there are some commercials that stick with you, and you end up quoting them, or you remember parts of them for a long, long time. For instance, there's a commercial right now with an emu in it, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? The, the commercial with the emu in it is some kind of insurance commercial, and I find these commercials to be hilarious. And so while I'm laughing on the couch... My wife just stares at me. She says, I don't understand why you find that funny. But I do. I think they're hilarious. And so I like watching them. Sometimes I rewind my TV so I can watch them again. But there is a set of commercials that we've kind of latched on to as a staff here at Journey. And if you were to sit through a meeting with us, you, someone at some point in this meeting would quote one of these commercials. And they've been going on for about a year and a half now. And they also or an insurance company commercial, and it's a, it's, a, it's a motivational speaker who is trying to help people not turn into their parents. You guys, y'all know what I'm talking about? And so you see the thing. Some of you guys live this out, right? When it came out and people were trying to sit down without making a noise, he's trying to teach them you actually can sit in a chair without going, oh, 
right? And so some of you guys, you find yourself now trying not to make an audible noise when you sit down because you see it's happening and you are living it out. And you're going, I'm becoming my parents. There's, a, there's another part where a lady has a sofa and it's full of throw pillows. Some of you are cursed to live that life. You walk into your living room, you got nowhere to sit, Right? There's something made for you to sit on, but you can't sit there because the decorative pillows are everywhere. And he's throwing them off and the lady's having a panic attack, right? She she can't deal with it. And, and quite possibly the favorite and most quoted part is when they're in a, a, a Home Depot type of store and they're walking around and he's just trying to train them when not to speak, right? He's like, did he ask for your advice? No, he did not. Then why are you talking to him? Like, he doesn't want to talk to you. He doesn't, he doesn't care what kind of brush you want him to get, right? But at the end of it, they're in the store and a guy walks by and he has a unique hairdo, right? And his hair is blue. And the coach is telling the guy, he's going, hey, we all see it, right? You don't have to comment on it. We all have eyes. We see that he has blue hair and he keeps encouraging him. He goes, hey, don't. We see it, we see it, and the guy all of a sudden just blurts it out. He says, he's got blue hair, right? <laughs> we all see it, but you guys know that, right? You're thinking of that commercial as I'm walking through this, that it just connects with you, and you may not, years from now, you may not remember what that commercial is about, but I bet when you're sitting down to read a book about a submarine, you're going, who else reads books about submarines? My dad, right? You're thinking about it. You're making the connection. How cool would it be? If in Christianity, we had commercials like that, that when people saw them, they automatically made that connection and they went, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what that's about. That, that's about. And then they were quoting it. They're saying, hey, man, did, did you see that commercial where and fill in the blank, whatever happened? And they're talking about it at their jobs. And when they're sitting in meetings like we are, they're, they're talking about that commercial that, that they had seen. And here's the good news. We have those. It's us. We're the commercials for Jesus. Me and you, we're walking around commercials every day and we're meant to do the same thing that a commercial does. That for people to look at us and go, I'm interested in what they have. I want to know a little bit more about that. Here's the way that the Bible says it. It says that when we're living this way, it says we are Christ's ambassadors. And God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. This is Paul. He says, hey, I want to remind you of something. You're Christ's ambassadors. You're the commercials. Here's what an ambassador does. He goes somewhere that is foreign to him. And he represents his country there to a people that do not know his country. And so we have ambassadors all over the world from America. And their job is to work on some policy stuff, but mainly they're there to represent the United States of America. And when people see them, and they see how they talk, and they see how they act, and they see the way that they treat other people, they're not just representing themselves and their family, they're representing an entire country. And so Paul is saying, hey, I want you guys to know this. Those of you who claim to be followers of Christ, that when you're going throughout your everyday life, listen about doing anything special. When the waitress gets your order wrong, you're an ambassador for Christ. When the accountant messes up your taxes and costs you thousands of dollars, 
you're an ambassador for Christ. When the person cuts you off and proceeds to go 18 miles an hour, you are an ambassador for Christ. And you're not just representing yourself. And you're not just representing your family. And you're not just representing your friends. You're representing another kingdom that you belong to. It's an eternal kingdom. And Paul is saying, I want to remind you guys, that's who you are. That God is literally making His appeal to other people through you. And so let me ask you, what kind of commercial are you living? When people look at you, do they go, man, I would love to have what they have. I'd love to little, I want to know a little more about who they are. And why is it that when things are falling down around them, they still have a good attitude? And why is it that when people are mean and they're jerks to them, they're not jerks bats? What is it about them that makes them different? And the early church got that. And they could have an impact on their neighbors because they were people who lived with humility. And they were people who understood that the gospel is bigger than all of our differences. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to live as someone who is an ambassador for Christ. And they knew this. They knew that the greatest gift that we can give our neighbors... It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's not a manicured lawn. It's not perfectly trimmed bushes. It's not a great barbecue. The best thing that you can give your neighbors is Jesus. I like to give gifts. I'm I'm horrible at receiving gifts. I think I'm probably pretty bad at giving them. But I like to give them. And so when Valentine's Day rolled around, my wife and I had always done something kind of funny for Valentine's Day because... You guys, you can disagree. We did not view it as a serious holiday. I think Hallmark created it, and they just wanted to make a bunch of money. Now we're all stuck with it. But I decided I wanted to do something nice for her, and so I bought her something I thought she would really like. And I planned for it weeks in advance because shipping is still so far behind and snowstorms are happening, and I got it here a week early. And I did what any good husband would do since it arrived early. I was like, she probably should just go ahead and open it. And so... I gave it to her because, I, you know, it, it, a little bit was about her and a little bit was about me, right? You did a good job, Daniel. Finally, you finally picked out something I like. And so she opened it. It was a pair of jeans from a specific store I knew that she would like that we don't get a chance to go to. So they shipped them in. She opened it. She's like, these are amazing. She looked at them. She goes, I don't know if these are going to fit. And I was like, are you kidding me? She goes, how did you figure out what size to get me? And I said, well, I crawled in the back of your closet one day when you were not home. And I went digging through a pile of jeans, and she goes, that, those pile of jeans are there because they don't fit anymore. <laughs> and so she goes, she disappears. I, I assume she tried them on. She goes, yeah, we're going to we're gonna swap them back in. And I thought, man, I was so excited. Have y'all been there? You're so excited to give somebody something, and then there's just kind of pew right off a cliff. Like, well, that didn't work the way that I thought that it was going to work. It, it's fun to give people gifts, though, and see excitement, isn't it? You give them something, you see a little bit of joy in their heart, or you, you just make their life a little better for a moment. I want you to know that you can't give anybody anything better than Jesus. And so your kids, you give them stuff because you want to see the excitement and you want to see what develops in their life and, and you just want to maybe help their hobbies along and let them know that you love them and you care for them. You can't give your kids anything better than Jesus. Same with your neighbors, people you work with. Man, you work hard. You ought to. The Bible says work cheerfully and hard as though you're working for the Lord. And so if you're not working hard, you literally are living in sin against Scripture. You should be someone who works hard. That's a gift to the people 
that you work with, but the best gift you can give them is the person of Jesus. And the early church was living with that. They said, hey, the best thing that we can give our neighbors is not financial help, it's not food, it's not even the bare necessities. The best thing that we can give them is Jesus, and we're going to use all of these other things to do that. That we're going to use the resources we've been given and the clout we've been given and the influence we've been given. We're going to use that to share to share Jesus. And then the last thing they were doing is this. Is they were being generous. They refused out of entitlement to hold on to the things that they had. And they began sharing the things that God had given them so that they can make a difference in the lives of people around them. The Bible uses a word for that called compassion. If you break it down in the Greek, which is what the original New Testament was written in, it's a word called splaglazamehi. And I want, we're in the middle of coronavirus, so I won't have you guys repeat that because germs will be flying all over the place. But it means this, it means to have the bowels yearn, not, not like stomach virus. That would be like us saying, uh, man, my heart aches for you. And in other words, emotion is tied to a part of the body. To feel deep sympathy, to be moved to, check it out, action. To be moved to action. It's another way of saying that if I truly care about somebody, then my actions are going to prove it. In other words, our actions always prove what's of chief importance in our life. And if other people are important to us the way that God said they were supposed to be, then my actions are going to prove it, not my words. Here's the way it worked out with Jesus in the New Testament. The Bible says Jesus saw a huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion that's our word, splaglazamehi, on them. And he healed their sick. In other words, there's action to it. And then again, Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And again, here's some action. And so he began teaching them many things. There's always action to it. So here's the principle for you and for me and for our church and for anyone else who is a follower of Jesus. When we see a need, we meet it. When we see a need and we have the ability to meet it, we're going to meet it. That's why the Bible says in Galatians 6.10, it says this, Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. Look at what he said. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, in other words, when someone is around us, And we have the opportunity to do good to them. They're our neighbor. And when we have that opportunity, we should do good. Not to the people we like, not to the people we agree with, to everyone. Especially to those, these people in this room, those who are in the family of faith. Her world is is broken, isn't it? They need light that we have. They need the light that we have. They need to know that someone loves them, that someone cares about them, that someone cares enough not to just pat them on the back and wish them well or maybe even say a short prayer, but to do something to meet their needs. It's a broken place. And every morning I get up and I have the, I have the same flow to my life because I'm boring like that. And I get up and I cut on the Today Show, or I cut on the the news that comes on before that, our local news station, and I see story after story after story that reminds me, first thing in the morning, that we live in a broken and a fallen world. 
And throughout the day, if you're like me, your phone will go off and you see another story that reminds you we live in a fall and we live in a broken world, that there's a world full of people that are broken and far from God. And the older I get, the more I can relate to people like my grandmother who didn't have much in life, but they were always looking forward to something else. She'd tell you like, hey, I I get by here on earth, but I know one day, right, one day I'm stepping into eternity and my reward is there. First, it's the person of Jesus. And then two, it's the inheritance that he's prepared for me, that that's where I belong. That's why you hear Christians say things like, this isn't my home or I don't belong here. It's because we don't. The moment that you accepted Christ and the Spirit came to live inside of you, your home became somewhere else. And we don't belong here anymore. We're not citizens of this world. Scripture tells us that now we're citizens of heaven. If we're not careful, we'll become citizens of heaven and forget that we're ambassadors to earth. That we're meant to, every day, every moment of our life, show other people a little glimpse of what it could be like to live with Jesus forever in eternity. And I get it. You're probably like me. You probably wake up every morning too and go, you know what, I'd be better off in heaven. Like, that's it. One day I'll look forward to that. And you'll be able to go up there and you'll be able to eat all the sugar you want to, right? Right there. Heaven. Nothing wrong. No sin ever existed. Everything in perfection, the way that God wanted it to be from the beginning. But we're still here. And we're here to make a difference. And whether you want to be here or not, the Bible says this in the Old Testament. The Israelites have been captured. And they're being taken off to a city that they don't belong to. This is not their home. And God has a message for them. He says, I want you guys to do this when you're living in exile. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you. In exile, where you don't belong. This is not your home, but work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I have sent you. And pray to the Lord for, its, his, for as its welfare will determine your welfare. Work for the peace and the prosperity of Prattful. Work for the peace and the prosperity of Millbrook. Work for the peace and the prosperity of Pine Level. Work for the peace and the prosperity of Wetumpka. Work for the peace and the prosperity of Otogaville. You get it? Work for the peace and the prosperity of the river region because this is where God has sent you. This is where He has sent you. And He has sent you where He has sent you and surrounded you with the people He has surrounded you with so that you can make a difference so that you can give other people a glimpse of what it would be like to have a relationship with Him. Here's some next steps for us today. One, you can introduce yourself to your neighbors. Look, it's hard to love people you don't know, right? We live in a society, we pull in our garage, we shut the door, we keep the blinds on the front of our house closed. And I know you guys do it just to keep the glare off the TV. Right. I also know you probably really do it because you don't want people to bother you. Right. And so introduce yourself to your neighbors. Just let them know who you are. Step number two could be this. Maybe you need to join a life group and begin living in a community where you can be neighbors together. They used to go, you know what? I'm tired of trying to do this on my own. and I need to be in a group of people who can encourage me and push me forward. There's a life group in the back of the room today. They're taking sign ups. It's 
It's our financial peace life group. If you want to know how to get to the point where some of these believers were at, where they had more than enough, where they could just give it away so that other people could have something, then that's the group you want to be a part of. They'll teach you, one, what the Bible says about finances, two, they'll just be there to love on you and do, excuse me, do life together. Maybe that's your step. Maybe you just need to join a group. Finally, maybe you need to sign up for love where you live. This is us telling our community we love you in a practical way by just meeting a need that we saw and a need that we have the resources to address. If you hadn't done that yet, then that's your step today. Go right now. Go online, myjourneychurch.com. Put your name in there and, and just dedicate a couple of hours toward the peace and the prosperity of the place where God has sent you. Would you guys join me in prayer? God, we love you and we're grateful for you. God, I thank you that you didn't just love us with words, but God, you loved us with action. Lord, that you left heaven and you gave your life for us so that we could experience what it's like to spend eternity with you. God, I thank you for each person in this room. God, I thank you for the neighbors that you have brought them in contact with. Lord, I thank you for the place that you have planted them. And Lord, we know without a doubt this is not our ultimate home. But God, this is where you've put us to make a difference. So God, I pray for each person here that they would make a difference this week. God, that they would find some way to see a need and to meet it in the life of someone else. God, may we be commercials worth remembering. Hey, if you would, keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment. We talked about how the greatest gift you can give someone else is the person of Jesus. I want you to know that the greatest gift that you can receive is the person of Jesus. And the Bible tells us this, that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of that sin is death, that it's eternal separation from Jesus forever. But then it says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, what happened was Jesus went and He paid that price for you. And He experienced that death and that separation so that now you can experience eternal life through Him. If you've never trusted Him, then I want to encourage you today to trust Him. To say something similar to this, Lord, today I realize I need You. I'm a sinner. I confess my need for you. I ask you for forgiveness. I repent and I trust you as the Lord of my life. God, I thank you for anyone who just said that. God, may we continue to make a positive impact in the River Region. God, we invite you to use us to be a good neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen.